The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. As you just heard, my name is Mark Potter. And here's a little detail, a story about this name. My wife Gwen and I have four kids, and our third kid is a girl named Elena. When she was about, she's now in her mid-twenties, but when she was, was probably 13, maybe 12, I was sitting at my desk, and she came in and she said, hey dad, do you know what your name means? And well, I actually do. So Mark is from the Roman god of war, Mars, and Edwin, my middle name, is Old English for a friendly one, and Potter, well, that's somebody that makes things. So it's, you know, a militant, friendly artist. And she said, no. And I was puzzled, and she said, there, just get on your computer, pull up dictionary.com, type in your name, Mark a small blemish on an otherwise clean surface usually caused by accident. <laughs> so, it's not true. It's not true about any human being that were small blemishes caused by accident. But it's pretty good wit for a 12-year-old. Um, very, very fun. I better put on my reading glasses so I can read some of these notes. I did not grow up in the church. I'm a convert four days after I graduated from high school. So I was 17. If one had majors in high school, I majored in art. I ended up at, in college at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. And I wanted it to be true that Jesus was Lord. So I was a believer. But through my last three years in college, struggled pretty deeply with doubt. I want this to be true, but is it true? Why do I believe this? How do I know that it's actually true? And of course, that tumbles one right into the big topic of apologetics. Apologetics is often defined as defense of the faith. Um, here's my definition of it, is it's the, it's the relationship between the church and the surrounding world. So it's a two-way street. So I'm struggling with doubt and I, I find apologetics books and I read one, two, three, five, ten, I read these books, but it's, it's, they didn't help. I learned things, but they weren't touching the question that I couldn't even quite say. So I'm, I'm a fairly new believer and I don't know how to say all this. I don't even know much about me, much about this new faith. Who is Jesus? What is going on and why am I doubting and why do these books that are supposed to answer these questions don't even touch my question? And perhaps some of you feel that way. The year, it was months right after I graduated from college, I was reading, it was for the first time, I had not read 
Tolkien's series, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. So I was reading this, and I came upon this quote. And this quote, I think, is going to get um, put up here on the screen. So I came on this quote. It's there in the third volume, The Return of the King, and Frodo and Sam are in the middle of Mordor. They're both exhausted. They're frustrated. Frodo ends up going to sleep, um, mostly just out of frustration, and Sam is deeply struggling with anger and unbelief and selfishness, and he's ready to quit and not quit, and he's struggling. And then here's the text there. Peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tour high up in the mountain, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while, and the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land. And hope returned to him, for like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. <sighs> that little set of sentences, kind of amazing to me, it did more than the 20-some apologetics books. Why? What's going on? That's what I want to talk with you about for a little bit. If you want to talk more, I'm hanging around here for lunch, and then I'm going to hang around in the art gallery. I'm going to take some more pictures of the quirky artist's work that's there. And so if you want to join me for lunch or you want to find me down there in the gallery in the afternoon, I'll be hanging around. Why did this little Tolkien sentence about light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of the shadow, the shadow in the end was only a small and passing thing. Why did that finally hit home? And of course, in a word, it's a vision of beauty God being the beautiful one, God restoring beauty, God making people to know and to feel and to make and participate in beauty. And there's light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of the shadow. So a big, big, big picture vision. Most of the apologetics books were true on the details but never got up to this gigantic, big, big picture vision. So here's some words first about this big problem. So the big problem, I call it dissection and disembodiment. So suppose, well here's a way to get at what I'm meaning by this big problem. Suppose that, I don't even know if he's here, is President Williams here? Um, but suppose that he was here and then we invited him up to, onto the stage and several of us got out our tools and we proceeded, pardon my um, somewhat odd analogy here, but we proceed to dissect him. President Williams, thank you very much for donating yourself for science. We are taking you apart. What are we going to gain from dissecting him? Of course, we will learn all kinds of truths about him. 
We will learn perhaps that his gallbladder is undersized for a male of his, of his um, height and weight. We might learn that, his, you know, that he has an extra vertebrae or that his left ear is two centimeters larger than his right ear. Um, all kinds of things. If we really wanted to, we could even learn what he had for breakfast. So you get the point of we could gain some truths. But of course, we gain those, but what's lost? What's gained? True truths about him. But what's lost, of course, most immediately, outstanding, is life is lost. And then it's a pretty ugly scene. We've gotten these truths at the price of beauty. So it's truth without beauty. It ends up being truths of a disembodied person. We have parts without the whole. We have all of his bones laid out. We've made all the charts and we've arranged them in sizes. And we have charts and charts about his muscles and all the chemical analyses of everything going on in his body. Lots and lots of truth. But he's dead by dissection. These truths, abstract, impersonal, aloof, distant, disembodied, dead by dissection. It's truth without beauty. It's facts without life. It's meaning without an embodiment of that meaning. And of course, the happy fact for President Williams is that the body of President Williams and the truths about President Williams belong together because that's how God has made things. Why has God made things this way? And then why, do, why is it so often that theology and apologetics, Christian communication, our efforts at evangelism, why is it that so often it feels like dissection? Truth gained, but it's how, it's, it often feels like facts without life. Truth without beauty. Why is it that God wants the body of President Williams and the truths about President Williams to hang together? And of course, it's because God wants word and image, meaning and body to always travel together. So that's partly just reacting to your video about the mission trips. That's partly why, it's actually a very big reason why, you send your body. <laughs> you go to Kenya. You don't just send an email. You could say the same truths in the email as you would standing there on the ground. But it's completely different, isn't it? The one is truths that are disembodied. And of course, God is interested in word and image. Or another way of saying it, truth and beauty to dwell together. The devil, of course, wants to split, to split apart word and image, truth and beauty. The devil wants there to be facts without life, 
truth without beauty, again, like the dissection analogy. And alas, a lot of evangelism, a lot of apologetics comes across that way to a lot of non-Christians. It's as if we regard people as data robots. Send them the data. It's as if the presupposition is that our problem with God, humanity's problem with God is mostly informational rather than relational. But keep digging down in this. The non-Christian world commonly wants to major in and keep images. Sometimes, almost exclusively, images without the word. Keep the beauty, but let's forsake truth. Let's pretend that doesn't exist. Let's care not much at all about that. Let's have the images and we get to define whatever they, we want them to be. So the non-Christian world commonly keeps images without the word, beauty without truth. But be careful here. The Christian corrective to that is not the simple opposite. Well, if they're gonna have beauty without truth, then we're gonna have truth without beauty. And yet, Often it's done in the history of the church. If they have images without word, we're going to major in the word without images. And the church in the United States is, we're ending 75, 80 years of exactly that error. Well, if they have images without the truth, we're going to have truth without images. There's something right in we're gonna guard truth, but there's something profoundly missing, of course, in that God is interested in truth and beauty, word and image dwelling together. So here's an example. Go browse Christian marriage books. So Gwen and I have been married for 31 years, and I read these, read lots of marriage books. In my opinion, if I may humbly and gently say so, they're very, very often exactly the same problem. Truths, but not much beauty. It's as if the thought that's unspoken is that the fundamental difficulty in marriage is only behavioral and ethical. And that it's unrelated, the difficulties in marriage, are unrelated to images and imagination. And the big, the big picture, the big metaphysical picture, and then as if it's all unrelated to the heart's hunger for beauty and satisfaction. So I lament, where's the, where's the excellent Christian book on marriage which is both solidly true and stunningly beautiful. Perhaps it's out there. I haven't bumped into it yet. But I long for that. 
Instead, I think we often see a kind of sad Faustian bargain on turf. Well, the devil can have images and we'll keep words. The result is that many believers, sorry, many unbelievers in our day think that God, think that God is less moral than they are. That's a fairly new twist on the cultural landscape. Many unbelievers in our day think that God is less moral than they are. And therefore, God is ugly. He's not the desire of the heart, and I want him, but I don't yet want him. You know, Augustine's famous prayer to God of, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Even in that prayer, there's an acknowledgement of God and God's ways are beautiful and good. And yet, fairly common in our day, God is seen to be less moral than people, and therefore he's ugly instead of beautiful, and therefore he's not the desire of the heart. People repulsed by the biblical God. So this problem of the split, this split between word and image, truth and beauty, It shows up vividly in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Of course, there's a great deal right here in these first five verses of Genesis 3. I'm only going to talk about two things. I call them the two primal lies. The first lie is really, it's posed as a question, but the devil's implied answer is obvious. Did God really say? Has God really communicated? Do you really have truth from God? So that first question, his implied answer is no. And that first lie, hidden in the nice tender tones of the interrogative, that first lie is the question of truth. Out to address the mind. And then this second lie, God knows 
that when you eat of it, you will be like God. Defining or knowing, knowing good and evil, defining good and evil for yourself. You are a self-defining image, a self-defining creature. God's holding back on you. So the second lie, it's slippery and it's, well, it's like it's underneath the mind, isn't it? It's not really applying, appealing to the question of truth. The first one does that. Has God clearly and honestly and truly communicated with you? Has God really said, do you have real words from the real God that are really true? And then the second question digs underneath that. What's underneath the mind? What's underneath there? Well, it's the love's of the heart, the desires of the heart. What do you really want? What are you gonna live for? Who do you get to be? What's your dream? What, what bedazzles you? Now be careful, the heart isn't just emotions. It's common in our day, you know, this book appeals to head and to heart. Well, it's, you know, kind of rational, but it'll make you feel warm. Um, the Bible doesn't mean heart as just the emotional side of you. The Bible means heart as like the control tower at the airport. It's in charge of every plane around. This plane gets to land, this one doesn't. These planes take off, these ones don't. The heart is the center. It's the hub of the bicycle wheel. So the mind is important, but the heart controls it. This second lie is an appeal to the heart. In simple, broad brushstrokes, the first lie is an appeal to the question of truth. The second, was an appeal, the second lie is an appeal to the question of beauty. What do you really want? What's attractive to you? What's the deepest desire of your heart? And that's what I'm meaning by beauty. So lie number two is about images and your act, this God-given gift. It's an immensely powerful gift. This gift called image-making, imagination tool. You can imagine things, well, like God. You don't have the power of speech, let there be and there was. But you have that same gift of this thing is not yet, but I'm beginning to imagine it. and then apply imagination to you, and to who you be and what you aspire to, what's desirable and good. That's what the devil's up to in line number two. And of course, there's a terrible, cruel irony here. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well. They were, of course, made by God as images of God to be like God, <laughs> but not independent. So the devil grips where there is a place to grip. He appeals where there's already deep desire in the heart. I'm made to be like God, and I 
properly, rightly, want to be like God. And the devil slides his lie right in at that spot. Your desires, what do you really want? What's the imagination that you pursue? The thing that is so beautiful that you believe will satisfy you. We are made like God. And images in imagination are a gigantic, perhaps the deepest part of us being made like God. So again, in summary, lie number one, truth. Lie number two, beauty. The devil, of course, wants to control both. And partly how he's going to control both as he splits them apart. He's going to propose beauty without truth, image without word, and therefore a self-defining creature. You get to be what you define. You get to know what is good and evil for yourself. Now back to apologetics. Christian apologetics, an observation of mine is that it almost all only addresses lie number one. Has God really said? And the answer from apologetics is yes. The word of God is really the word of God. It's really true. Here's why, etc., 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 etc. But sadly, and so perhaps some of you get stirred and here's a life project for you. Sadly, line number two is almost always left untouched and therefore unanswered. But in answering line number one, the question about truth, has God really said, without also answering line number two, what do you imagine you should be like? What beauty bedazzles you? To answer line number one and not answer line number two, well, it's like apologetics malpractice. It's apologetic dissection. We're just going to chop up reality into its constituent parts and lay out truths. But they're truths without life. Truths without a body. And so it's truth without beauty. And of course, line number two is the far, far deeper relationship to God problem. Why is that? It's because line number two is about the desires of the heart, the dreams. And again, what bedazzles you? What's beautiful? It shows up right there in what's recorded about Eve. She saw. And then what she saw is that it was good and it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. See, all of that is under images and imagination. My big title, beauty. 50 years ago, roughly, line number two was largely answered by our culture. You lived in the United States and the culture quietly, but pretty clearly answered, well, God is beautiful and the heart ought to have God as its chief desire. 
And if, if you don't, well, we'll pray for you and you should become that person where you're actually wanting God. That was just the cultural air. Some of you know the term Francis Schaeffer called it the, culture, the Christian cultural consensus. It wasn't that everybody was a Christian. It was just that the culture was much more dominantly Christian and so the culture quietly whispered, God is the beautiful one. Your heart should desire God. But now again, it's commonly considered the opposite. <laughs> God is ugly. And so it's not to be your heart's desire. And apologetics then, which deeply addresses the desires of the heart, is therefore deeply, deeply, deeply needed. So there's the problem, dissection and disembodiment, a split of word and image, or truth and beauty. Truth split from beauty. Quickly then, 10 minutes to go, a good solution and then a little bit of practical application. The good solution, of course, is just the opposite of disembodiment, it's embodiment. And from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, God is in pursuit of embodiment. And of course, God's whole word tells us exactly this story, unfolds it from the beginning of God's big book to the end. And therefore, line number two is deeply and beautifully answered in God's book. Here's a couple of points of how. One is that God is the all-good, all-powerful, all-creative artist, and people, all people, are made in his image. So everybody's involved in a giant art project because God is an artist and you're made like him. And he made his whole creation to be his big art gallery. And you are the walking about self-portraits of God. So you be art, you're made by art, you're made for art, you're made to manage art, in the gallery, and then you're made to make art in the biggest, broadest sense. Everybody's involved in making whatever you're called to make. The big sense of it is that it's art. You're made in the image of God. So right there, God unites truth and beauty. Again, the devil splits them. God is after embodiment, and the devil splits them into disembodiment. Here's a second way in which God is unfolding embodiment is that he communicates through embodiment, the union of word and image, truth and beauty. Quickly, here's four ways. One is the whole creation, the whole creation communicates this union of truth and beauty, of word with image. God means it to communicate. Second, the whole Bible communicates about this union. The real word of God is also the real word of people. Real human beings wrote this, and the real God wrote this. It makes for a marvelous kind of mess, but it's how deeply God is interested in embodiment. Instead of just picking a secretary, I will dictate the word, write it down. But no, 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 your personality, you, you write. How do you want to put it? And then you put it a little bit differently. 
and this guy, and then Leroy wrote it out. He wrote the crazy man, big guy gospel. And on and on, it's person. God says, embody the truth by your personality. Whoa. But it's still the word of God. Both. See, do you see it? The union of the word and the union of the images of God who helped write the word of God. It's breathtaking. And then, of course, the gigantic event is son of God became son of man. The guy who made woman was born of a woman. Try to wrap your head around this. So the theologian's term, of course, is the incarnation. But be careful that you don't get bored with using that, you know, by using that term, that you miss the, the jaw-dropping, breathtaking act of God. Son of God becomes son of man. It's the ultimate expression of embodiment, God's drive towards and love for embodiment. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, tabernacling right here in our neighborhood. He's the image of the invisible God. He's truth made flesh. The maker of woman was born of a woman and we are to imitate him. See, truth is not a platonic, it's not platonic tr principles. You know, just abstract things you look up in a book. But ultimately, truth is a person. And beauty is not Aristotelian abstractions, but ultimately, beauty is the person. The relationship of God with God with God. And the relationship of God with his creation. And the relationship of God with his people. Truth and beauty are thoroughly personal, thoroughly embodied. So truth and beauty are united in how God communicates. The incarnation, of course, is like the ultimate art project. <laughs> God becomes... God, the maker of the gallery, becomes his own self-portrait in his own gallery and acts out the chief acts of the drama. Truth and beauty utterly united. Fourthly, then, the body of Christ. I said the incarnation is the ultimate art, art project. It's the almost ultimate art project. The body of Christ is the ultimate art project. Because the body of Christ now takes the place of the body of Christ. Did you get that? The body of Christ, the church, takes the place of we're now to incarnate the ascended Lord Jesus. He's still embodied, but he's not here. We are. We are to be the body. <laughs> so it's not an accident. It's not just a nice metaphor of the body of Christ, you know, unity and diversity. That's important, but it's bodily, flesh and blood. It's the union of truth and beauty, word and images going together. The body of Christ then is this ultimate art project. God is deeply into pursuing embodiment. And of course the end of the story is God comes to the new earth and lives here in union. Now is the dwelling of God with his people. 
embodiment of God, embodiment of you with God. Three minutes, some humble practice. So what are you going to do? What do you do to help apologetics grow towards truth and beauty? You might call on the artists. Here's a sadness of mine. You would think we could just call on the artists. Okay, let's make things. Let's have images with words. But most Christian artists, I might be wrong in this. It's my observation. Most Christian artists don't want to do a union of images with words. It's just images. There's lots and lots and lots to talk about right there. I'm going to skip on past it, but there's a tearful, heartbreaking thing that I observe. It's beauty without truth, images without words, and on the opposite side is most Christian apologetics is truth without beauty, words without image. But the artists are, so I weep, I pray, perhaps some of you are stirred by this. Currently there's a large, new, resurgent interest in beauty. It's a great thing. Lots and lots of theologians now interested in beauty. I'm glad, but I'm wary. After decades of truth without beauty, it seems to me there's too many signs that make it seem like it's now we're going to have decades of beauty without truth. Here's a happy exception. Handel's Messiah, this year, it's 275 years old. It's clear telling of the truth, and it's astonishingly great beauty. It's the best known and most performed piece of choral music in the world. The whole story of redemption is told. It's deeply biblical. It's openly evangelistic. It's unreservedly truth-telling, kind of even in your face. And this odd, astonishing, amazing, beautiful thing that happens, it's especially taken off in the 20th century, like the past 50 years, around the world, in every big city, you can find multiple performances around Christmas time of Handel's Messiah, and you can find thousands of non-Christian people happily singing along, singing the Messiah. They know what Handel meant by it. And he did not dilute the truth like, oh my, we, I can't do you know, music with such clear, intentional, even in-your-face meaning. He did. And people aren't offended. I think the key to it is not, oh, be careful with how much you intend a thing. The key is, how much integrity have you packed into the thing? You have to... You have to have the word and the images, in this case, musical expression. You have to unite those things. You have to push so hard, it feels like your eyeballs are going to pop out. Then you know you're getting close to integrity. That's what Handel did. And everybody around the world recognizes it. This is genius writing and genius music and the notes in the, in the words and the notes in the music, they match. It's... So I disagree with the words, but I'm not offended because I get it that this is soaring, soaring, beautiful integrity. So you can tell what I think. There's our path. Go the path of integrity rather than, oh, you might be offended that I'm meaning 
truth too much in my expressions, so I have to lessen the truths. I have to lessen the intentionality. Okay, I gotta finish. So, he pushed both word and image to utterly match full blast integrity rather than dilution. And then, if you haven't gone to see the little Bone in My Bones exhibit over in the gallery, there's my attempt to do this whole thing of integrity. Don't hold back in saying what I mean by the pieces. Say it. But don't have the words be stronger than the sculptures. See, that's a breach of integrity. Lots and lots and lots to talk about there. Here's the closing. Don't stop trying to do both. Pursue both. Second college is an excellent, excellent, excellent place to learn how to do this both, this union of truth and beauty, word and image. And to expand the scope and find your place in it and pray and experiment and dream and dare and serve and go. And learn how to embody truth and beauty. And lastly, of course, fix your eyes on Jesus, the image of the invisible God the image of the invisible God, the author and finisher of our faith, the desire of every nation, the union of creator and creature, God and man, word and image, truth and beauty. May I pray for you in closing. Let's pray. Oh, great God. Sweep us off our feet in amazement at you. Open our eyes. Open the eyes of our hearts and open the eyes in our heads that we might see your splendor and glory and majesty and power and that you indeed would be the great desired beauty of each of our hearts. Give us that grace and that work in our hearts that we might be more and more and more conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And it's in his name that we gladly and confidently pray. Amen. Thank you much.